0: Good morning, Norman. Good morning, Carl. Can you hear me? I can hear you just fine,
1: as long as you can hear me. I can. Thank you. I'm glad we were able to connect.
0: Yes. Yes. This is a, an interesting um, way to do an interview that not everyone is comfortable with, but uh, there seem to be a number of people who like to listen to it.
1: We're, okay.
0: We're okay. going well, to be... I'm,
1: yes? I am uh, happy to uh, to talk to somebody. Uh, with your background. It's a rare treat. I think I'll learn something about myself and about my work, if I'm lucky, talking to (laughs) a literary historian. You're not the usual, you're not the usual uh, interviewer. Yes, at least.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. Um, We're going to be talking about your novel Voices in the Dead House, Mm -hmm. Uh, but before we get to that specific novel, and of course it's part of a series of what my review in the New York Sun called uh, novelizing history. Um, Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became a novelist.
1: Uh, I've been writing now since I was 17. I'm 72. So quite a long time. Um, The first part of my career for the first 10 years, let's say, was devoted to the writing of poetry. Uh, I studied at at the University of Pennsylvania under Daniel Hoffman, uh, a poet, uh, a former uh, Library of Congress uh, uh, laureate. Uh, I also uh, studied with uh, Philip Roth, not for poetry, but for prose, uh, Lauren Isley. Uh, and I took my master's at Syracuse University, where I studied under the poets uh, uh, Philip, uh, uh, Philip Booth uh, and Gioni. And so I devoted my, the next 10 years after graduation to the writing of poetry. And I don't think it was very good poetry for the most part. It was, uh, it was derivative of its time, which in the seventies was very much a pop influence uh, confessional, but i did I did begin to discover the the pleasures of writing um, dramatic narratives, uh, which I recalled having been first introduced to in high school with the work of uh, Robert Browning uh, and i just I just loved that uh, recreation of a human personality in all of its uh, colors uh, through the voice. Uh, and so that became something, the dramatic narrative, uh, the idea of it never left me. And I took it up in earnest in the, uh, it, uh, about 10 years ago in the beginning of the, of the writing of the American novel series. And after the poetry, I, I wrote some short stories. Uh, I was uh, lucky enough to uh, uh, earn the praise of, our, of uh, George Plimpton at the Paris Review, which gave me a, a boost. Uh, and then I turned to, uh, I, I became, my, my, my interest became more and more with the human voice. And with the pleasures and challenges of the creation of a character and a scene and a situation, uh, entirely using the voice and dialogue. And the next 10, 12 years, I wrote nothing really but uh, plays, both for the stage and for the radio. Uh, I had five plays, radio plays done uh, in Germany over WDR. In translation uh, and from there uh, I remember my agent uh, telling me that my stage plays were becoming more and more concerned with language and less and less uh, with the dramatized situation and I ought to really think about writing a novel uh and i think that advice uh well it certainly propelled me in, into fiction again and i wrote a lot of short stories and short fictional texts uh mostly of the uh, intellect intellectual fantasies and uh fables uh, like uh, Cortazar, uh Kafka, uh, Calvino, Hildesheimer, mostly the uh, Eastern European uh, writers that I admired for their elusiveness and their metaphorical concerns and structures. Uh, I published uh, two collections of the short stories, one with Fiction Collective 2 and the other with uh, Bellevue Literary Press, who ended up, uh, publishing uh, the uh, well will be twelve subsequent novels in the American uh, uh, novel series. Uh, the first American novel, uh, the idea for it came to me came to me as a result of thinking back uh, on K- Hurricane Katrina and its aftermath. Uh at the time, I think this was nine this was twenty uh I believe, we had a, a hurricane here in New Jersey, which you'll remember or Sandy. Oh yeah. 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 And uh lying in the lying in bed here for seven, eight, nine days without power, I I, I thought about this, what came to be the boy in his winter which is the imagining of uh Huckleberry Huckleberry Finn and Jim coming down the raft from uh Hannibal uh down the Mississippi uh beginning in 1836 in the mythic time of Twain's novel and entering New Orleans in time for hurricane Katrina to bl- blow them into history <laughs> and uh And that was the start of the American Novels series. That's quite a bang-up start. (laughs)
0: Uh, In listening uh, to you, more than any other guest I think I've had on this podcast, you've described a kind of uh, intellectual literary universe out of which um, these novels have emerged uh, I was thinking about your reference to Robert Browning and his dramatic monologues, yes. which were what caught my eye as a young budding actor and then as a literary scholar. And uh, the the power, um, the directness of those voices, uh, and they're they're set in specific times. Yes. the appeal to the historian in me as as well as the uh, the literary side. And then some of the names that you mentioned, like Daniel Hoffman. He wrote a very interesting book on Poe. Um, yes,
1: Poe, 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 Poe. <laughs> yes,
0: po. <laughs> exactly, which I you know, which I, I, devoured, which I thought was terrific. Uh, I went through a Lauren Isley phase. If listeners don't know about Lauren Isley, you're missing something. Uh, very powerful writer. Um, he writes nonfiction, but of a particular kind, very imaginative kind, and his own sensibility is partly yes. when you read someone like like Lauren Isley, and Philip Booth, and, and Mangione, and those kind of people, but then I was suddenly struck by your mention of Eastern European writers, who have always appealed to me, I had a Fulbright to Poland, oh, okay. in, uh, really 1979, think. 1980 And one of the things that appealed to me about both Central European film and specifically Polish film, as well as the novels, was they didn't shy away from history. Uh, That became, you know, how could they? Their everyday lives were so shaped by the regimes and the systems they've lived in. And Americans, at least some Americans, uh, seem to think they can lead their lives without any sense of history or politics. exactly. And history then descends on them when it does with an incredible shock. And then suddenly people are talking about their loss of innocence, which to an Eastern European must seem ludicrous. Yes. Uh, I know it did to Cheswap Miwosh. There's been a recent yes. biography of Miwosh. Uh, and that's one of the things he noticed when he went to California, is that <laughs> is that, you know, people had, sort of no sense really of how to place themselves in history because history as a subject is is not important. And finally, I wanna mention George Plimpton who is such a spark plug. Uh, mm-hmm. I wasn't a friend of Plimpton's, but I was once at an event that Plimpton helped organize for the English speaking union. And it was uh, about biographers, both American and British and the, the British biography, it was sort of like an early Zoom where you could mm-hmm. see them online speaking and dialoguing with yeah. us. And, and I got into a few arguments with the British biographers. <laughs> and afterwards, Plimpton came up to me and he said, Carl, that was great. That was one for our side, <laughs> <laughs> which is very, very Plimpton, uh, a real, real uh, enthusiastic person. So, uh, as I say, it just, to me, so much of what you say resonates and I think will resonate for anyone who reads your novels, whether they know about your background or not. Although, of course, now they know it. Uh, starting with poetry, I think, is interesting, too. Faulkner called himself a failed poet. Uh, and for some of the same reasons you suggest, that is, his, his work was very derivative. Uh, but that's how he learned. That's how you learn. Yeah, exactly you learn through imitation i mean that's what that's how th- people were taught for instance in the 18th century you copied out other uh, other uh exactly. writers styles exactly. because that's 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 how you lived and observed with it so you know it, even something like rote learning uh which was disparaged and instead was replaced with something called critical thinking well i'm not against critical thinking god knows but i think you could, you have to have some kind of baseline. Yes. And, and I think that's what you had before you turned to, to the novels. One, of the, one, one thing I wanted to ask you about is, I use this label just for purposes of convenience. I, I, I say you're writing biographical novels, but I'm not sure that you, from your point of view, think of them that way, do you?
1: Uh, no, and I've, I've wondered about the, the label of... Uh... Uh, historical novel historical fiction as it applies uh to my books and it seems to me that what i'm doing is is uh using which is something i want to talk to you about uh, using uh the past uh as a lens to uh, view certain what i would think of as sicknesses in the present uh, body politic uh coming coming at it from the past where the antecedents of uh, many of the maladies and social dysfunctions uh, had their root. And yeah. I don't think, I, I think of history uh, and time as a, as a continuum. And for me, the, the, the past is not the graveyard of the present. But the past persists into the present in its institutions, uh, its its state of its the state of its, uh, the state of its uh, social conditions, uh, its literature, its politics, and uh, would continue on into whatever future uh, is is granted us. And uh, it, it it's as you say, it, it for, for a writer or for a reader to dismiss the past uh whether the uh, that of the historical or biographical record or of uh american literature my my field of uh, endeavor has been 19th century american literature but to dismiss all that as irrelevant uh is very short-sighted and more than that is is uh, this is dangerous as we see increasingly increasingly today I think
0: that's yeah that's part of the pr- part of the problem i see anyway with with uh life now is uh, particularly with the uh, contemporary journalism uh everything comes as a surprise everything yes. is supposedly unprecedented and it's not exactly. unprecedented at all
1: no no I, I, no exactly um i i'm coming around to uh to the belief that what is necessary is, and I know uh, this will certainly be an unpopular position, but what's necessary is a kind of social realist uh, art and novel, uh, the same as was so important to uh, social change in the 1930s uh, and in earlier times. I'm thinking of... uh, well, Do, uh, John Dos Passos in his U- USA trilogy is very it's, important to me.
0: Yeah, it's, it's time to bring back Dos Passos. Yes. People talk about Faulkner, and I'm certainly not objecting to talking about Faulkner
1: or Hemingway or Fitzgerald. Steinbeck or yes, all Frank of them. Norris, Stephen Crane, all of these, these, uh, these people who, who saw the individual, the Emersonian individual, uh, as insufficient. Yeah, uh, and place them back in a social historical context. Uh, I, I, think that, I think that needs to happen again. And that is what I've been trying to do. Uh, I, I know I've had the discussion with other people uh, who advocate as I once did when I was a young man, art for art's sake. And I, I don't believe in that. Mm-hmm. It has to, I think, art needs, and again, uh, this is going to be, a, this is an unattractive uh, position, but art needs to serve another purpose. And I I, I, I want to get your opinion. Do you think the space of the novel is a moral one?
0: Or I do. Yeah, I do. I um, do. I think that um, obviously there's the aesthetic shape to the novel. Yes. Uh, One of the reasons why I wrote a biography of Norman Mailer is because I think he stood out. Uh, He put himself on the line, whether you agreed with Mailer or not. He wrote novels. He wrote nonfiction. He blurred the line between fiction and the novel. Uh, He ran for public office. He is all kinds of things which the sort of the orthodoxy of literary modernism says you're not supposed to do. Uh, And one of the reasons Mailer did, in fact, uh, become so socially and politically engaged is because of the example of writers like Dos Passos. Uh, Dos Passos was extremely important. You don't get a novel like Mailer's The Naked and the Dead unless you have John Dos Passos. I had never considered that, but
1: yes. Yes.
0: he And what Dos Pastis is doing in his novel with uh, the camera eye and the use of newspaper headlines and then the, the sort of the individual private lives of people.
1: Yes. Dos
0: Pastis is constantly telling us there's a connection between all these things. Yes. Uh, and that's what I think your, your, your novels, whether we call them biographical or not, um, is trying to do. Is, yes, there are some... Uh, famous or noteworthy uh, figures in your books, but uh, and I tried to to suggest this in in my uh, short review uh, in the New York Sun. All of this is at the service of a novel. Um, we can't lose sight of who these people were historically, and you you talk about that uh, at the end of um, Voices in the Dead House, for example. Uh, you you talk about your complicate anyone would have to have complicated or complex feelings about Walt Whitman for example yes Um, but what you're able to say in the novel is very much dictated by the kind of novel you're writing if you see what I mean I do I think think that's what people often lose sight of when they say well this didn't happen or that didn't happen and they get terribly worried about that Uh, and some novelists do point out you know where they depart from history and and some don't well the history is there history is there to learn it's not it's not like the novel has evaporated it or destroyed it or in some way sullied it it's all still there
1: no no you're you're absolutely right and i i think if you look at the uh, i don't know when it was that i began to write afterwards to these novels but they're becoming longer. Uh, and, I noticed and longer. that. Yeah, I noticed. The,
0: I I looked through all your books. I haven't been able to read them all mm-hmm. yet. But I looked through to see because I'm very interested in that. Someone like Joyce Carol Oates will will give credit, you know, to the the books she read and 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 things outside the novel itself. But many don't. Susan Sontag was disdain that idea that a novelist would do that. Yes. Uh, but to me. Um, I think of Sir Walter Scott who wrote footnotes to his novels. Oh, did he? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, long historical footnotes, which to me are fascinating. Uh, I taught uh, Sir Walter Scott and Dos Pazos, neither one particularly in fashion, but to me something has really been lost. Uh, I recently read uh, Eckerman's Conversations with Goethe and he spends a lot of time talking about
1: Sir Walter Scott. I know he was important to Emerson as well. I haven't read uh, Scott since high school. Yeah. But uh, y- yes. And uh, the the idea, uh, I, I'm i becoming, I can admit to you that I'm becoming increasingly uneasy about one of the principal features of uh, historical fiction, which is to recreate the past. In my case, the American past, the, 19th century but I think what makes me uneasy Carl is the exploitation of actual men and women who are seized from history for the purpose uh, of yeah. writing stories yeah. now, my, mar- my motives may be of the highest but in that one of the constant themes in the novels in the American novel series is, uh, is the, uh, the annexation of land uh, from native peoples, the appropriation of resources, uh, the slave trade, which is, uh, an exploitation of, of human resource, uh, uh, territorial adventures like the Mexican War of 1847 and the civil war, the Spanish American War 19 of 1898, which is, uh, which is the, uh, the background to the 11th novel. Uh Uh, which features uh, Stephen Crane's presence is felt throughout. Mm. Um, I I begin to wonder if I'm not guilty of the same kind of manipulation when I recreate once living individuals who had their certain qualities, thoughts and beliefs and habits and uh, for my own use. Um, Yeah. Well, you you can't
0: detach yourself from history. Uh, and w- what you're doing is in one in one respect anyway, is what historians do too. In other words, you're you're uh, you're writing about somebody who existed. Yes. but there's also a kind of projection uh, that's unavoidable, uh, so that when you read a novel like Burr, I, I think Corvidal's Burr is, is quite a fascinating book, and one of the reasons is because I think there are certain things. Burr that Vidal understood better than anyone else. And that's partly because of Vidal. The <laughs> there were certain aspects of Vidal the, the that were very like Burr. Mm-hmm. So he mm-hmm. he's, both, he's both, as, as uh, mm-hmm. Wordsworth says um, in his Immortality Ode, he's both half perceiving
1: and half creating. Ye- yes, yes. It's inescapable. Uh, I wonder if that's not another... Law uh, in the, the strategy of writing the kinds of uh, fiction that you and I are interested in that we that we are half perc- half perceiving uh, the other uh, through our own uh, conscious filters that uh, we're projecting uh, yeah. onto a person who had a very real existence in the past. Yes. Yeah. Or in the present, uh, we're projecting something of our of ourself, and doing both a disservice to that uh, lived life, uh, as well as to the present reader who wishes to understand something about that.
0: Well, there are two yes. things I have to say say about that. Uh, one is, um, I, I always say this about biography. Uh, the answer to one biography is always another biography. So (laughs) if you see what I mean, uh, you you don't like my biography of Sylvia Plath, I assure you there are others. Uh, And I feel (laughs) the same way about the historical figures you deal with. You're a little disturbed by Norman Locke's Walt Women. Well, there are others uh, that you, you can consult. So I don't think you should feel too badly. The other issue, however, uh, is one that William Faulkner addressed. He deals with the past all the time. But he very purposely avoided any kind of traditional historical fiction. And the reason he did that is because he wanted, as he called himself, the sole owner and proprietor of Yoknapatawpha County. He didn't want to introduce a character like the way uh, Robert Penn Warren does in All the King's Men, Willie Stark, based yes. on, on Huey Long. Yes. uh Faulkner wrote him and he said the best part of that novel is there's a story within the story the cast Mastering story mm-hmm. which is set in the 19th century it's a beautiful set piece and Faulkner loved it he said he said to um, Warren he said you should have kept that and thrown the rest away then he said but I'm not sure that anyone could maintain for a whole uh, narrative in the novel that sense of the past that you know that he had created in the cast story, yes. so Faulkner was part of that modernist generation. It's partly why people, I think, don't read Sir Walter Scott, for example, is is because modernists very much turned away from that that treatment of of historical figures. And now it's come back with a vengeance. That's a whole other issue, which I'm not, I can't explain why it is that suddenly. We have so many uh, novels now and novelists who who are are in some sense doing what you're doing. I, I,
1: I if we can hold on to that thought, I'd like to go back sure. to uh, what you what you were saying about the Penn Warren. Uh, without uh, uh, Stark's uh, identification, and it may be it may not it may be lost to contemporary readers with yeah the historical figure of uh Huey Long um would it have been less would it have what I guess I'm trying to to ask is does the does the historical recreation of a character under a different name uh the the fictionalization does that is that strengthened does that become uh does that acquire more moral authority I guess if it is referring to an actual figure in, in the, in the, from the historical record. Um,
0: yeah, I don't know. That's a fascinating question. And I don't know how, how Warren thought about that. I've never come across uh, any substantial reply to Faulkner's objection to the novel from Robert Penn Warren, yeah. who, who greatly admired Faulkner. Let's talk a little bit about um, uh, Voices in the Dead House. Mm-hmm. How, how, how did you pick Walt Whitman and and, and um, uh, Louisa May Alcott. How did that come about? Uh,
1: well, uh, the choices for these uh, yes, for the subjects of the series—they're twelve books. They're all done now. I'm just just waiting to be published. Uh, it's really a programmatic one. I had a professor at Penn uh, whose name I. I have been trying to remember so that I can credit her in the last novel. But she said that the great works, the great original influential works of American literature in the 19th century were uh, the Scarlet Letter, Moby Dick, uh, the poetry of Whitman, the poetry of Dickinson, uh, Hawthorne, the Scarlet Letter, the very people who who i took as uh uh as my as my subjects uh so it was only, it was inevitable that i would write about uh in fact i have been writing all along uh, about uh Walt Whitman he makes an appearance uh in the uh, in the second novel he appears he has a major part in the the unpublished, the the novel that will be published next year, The Ice Harp, uh, with uh, Emerson. Uh, But I knew that I needed to treat him fully. Uh, The idea of pairing him with uh, Louisa May Alcott uh, was the result of my reading uh, certain of the biographies about both of them. And I realized that there was a point in time when both of them were ministering to the casualties in wartime Washington uh, and they were within uh, a mile or so of uh, their, their respective hospitals were within a mile or so of each other. And in fact, uh, while, while Whitman was primarily attached to uh, uh, the Union Hospital and the Washington Mall, he also visited the sick and the wounded in a, a number of other hospitals, including uh, uh, forgive me, I got that backwards. It forget. Uh, she, Louisa May was at the Union. Uh, Whitman was at. Uh, uh, well, I, I've forgotten at the moment, but me too. Yes, but they. He was at the same. He was visiting at the same hospital, now and again that she, for about ten weeks, was uh, was working as a nurse. So it was entirely, I saw that it was entirely plausible and possible that they could have seen each other, but there's nothing in the biographies that suggested they actually spoke to each other. But they, of course, did know each other through Louise's uh, uh, father, Bronson, uh, who was an acquaintance, uh, a pretty good acquaintance of Walt Whitman. So the connection connection was there, it was just a matter of, of uh imagining uh imagining re- reimagining how it might have worked out uh, yeah. and I like the idea i had I had developed the idea in a in an early novel that had nothing to do with, with with these. It was written about fifteen years ago in which a character two characters look at each other over a great distance. And I'd like that, that idea of, uh, of two characters observing each other, uh, having at least uh, making interior remarks about the other, uh, though never meeting.
0: That's interesting. It reminds me of Daniel Mark Epstein, who wrote this book about Lincoln and Whitman, and how he, he deals with that issue of how, there, how there's proximity there, but there isn't really contact
1: Yes, uh, yes. If
0: you were E.L. Doctorow, by the way, you would have had Elcott and Whitman meet. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because in Ragtime, he does that kind of thing.
1: He does. He, in fact, that's the first novel, Ragtime, which I read in the, uh, in the late 70s, whenever. Yeah. Uh, that I understood or I realized the possibility of introducing an historical uh, yeah, character into fiction. I had never, it never occurred to me before. Yeah, you
0: know, some interviewer—I I can't remember this. I'm just going on memory. But some interviewer asked, "Doctor, did so and so and so and so really meet?" Yes. But you know, and and Doctor said, "Well, they have now." <laughs> perfect
1: answer. <laughs> A perfect answer. But see, that trouble that troubles me now. <laughs>
0: it didn't. It didn't trouble Doctor. I think because <laughs> I think he was like Falker. He believed in the supremacy of his own fiction. Ah.
1: That's well said.
0: Yeah. Well yeah. Said. I, I think I think he just didn't look back. And and, and I it's ragtime, I think, is a magical novel. It's just it really playful and and insightful and yes. everything
1: else you can say about yes. it. Yes. Sure. It was the introduction of Houdini that I think caught my eye. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's been yeah. some time since I've read it, but uh,
0: it's it's marvelous. One yeah. of the things I wanted to say about your creation of Walt Women that I really liked was when someone reads Walt Whitman, um, if they don't know much, or even if they know, you know, there are lots of biographies of Whitman, even if they've read Whitman biography, I think a, a reader of Whitman might still wonder, was he really like that? You yes. know, in the poetry, did, did he have a bar, barbaric yawp? You know, did he, did he, was, he <laughs> was he really that flamboyant? You know, did, was he the lover of mankind and womankind and everything in between, the way he says? And what I love about your novel is that that Walt Whitman is there. I think the way he treats wounded men, you know, the kind of love that he expresses for them, certainly you can identify with that if you've read Whitman's poetry. And yet at the same time, he knows that he's created a persona. Exactly. And that's what's fascinating about the novel. And that's, that's what's most difficult for a biographer because you've got to have some kind of evidence, you know. And unless you've got some letter where Whitman says, you know, well, I got to keep up this facade. You know, you're not going to get that kind of... Uh,
1: uh, that, I think that's why we go to your novels. And you don't, as a, as a literary historian, literary biographer, you don't... Resent that kind of uh, appropriation and manipulation. That's interesting because some biographers do. I some biographers
0: really dis- dislike, you know, um, biographical or historical novels or docudramas. You know, people always saying, "Well, that's not exactly what Bobby Kennedy was like or said," and so on. Yes. Um, and I'm not sure why uh except like Norman Mailer, I've always regarded myself intellectually as a kind of outlaw, and I guess that's why novels like Doctor Rose appeal to me i don't I don't like the rigid categories, and even though I understand what Faulkner was saying to Robert Penn Warren uh, i don't it, I don't quite
1: accept it. Uh, Carl, I wouldn't have accepted it. I wouldn't have accepted it two years ago. Um, I think it's the state of play here in America, well, in the world, I suppose at large, that uh, this doubting of uh, of, of fact, yeah. this constant uh, revisionism has made me, I, I asked about the, the, the novel being a, also having a moral space, and I, I think it's that that I'm reacting to, and and this sort of self-doubt, I guess, every we all, whatever our profession, we have uh, self-doubt. Are we doing the right thing, not only by ourselves, but by our audience uh, in in dealing up, uh, I, I suppose, and I try not to do this, but there are some historical novels where there's an alternative uh an alternative truth being being proposed yeah and yeah. that uh, i find that difficult today uh to countenance it's a it's a kind of counterfactual truth um
0: that a novelist like robert coover uh, though he's dealing with actual historical events and real people in the public burning for example mm-hmm. um it's interesting uh the way he treats the rosenberg execution as a public execution, you know, which, which it wasn't. Uh, and then I'm reading um, Sylvia Plath's uh, journal and diary, and she says exactly that. She's so upset about the Rosenberg. She said, they might as well put it on TV. Mm-hmm. So it occurred to people at the time, at least it occurred to one person, Plath. So I guess I come back to um, like a broken record, the notion that, you can't take this responsibility all to yourself or put it on your shoulders, that that there are these competing narratives, there are these counterfactuals um, that, I think, tell us something about what actually happened by giving us, you know, what, in a sense, what could have happened or, or given us an alternative. But I think you need a certain sophistication, I suppose. You know, I think what That's critics great. often... You know, often television critics, when they see a docudrama, thinks, well, people are going to go away thinking, you know, Oliver, Oliver Stone's JFK, you know, that they're they're going to think that's what happened. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not sure what to say that. Should, should we submit a work of art, whatever it is, a film, a poem, a novel, a Robert Browning um, monologue, uh, to the worry, to the concern that someone... Isn't sophisticated enough to
1: understand that this is a literary creation. Well, you're you're correct in that. It, it always uh, the idea. Most, uh, of course, every novelist, every novel has buried in the uh, little thicket of, of small type at the very beginning where the copyright information is the disclaimer that this is a work of fiction. Yeah. So that caveat but it's uh it it's always struck me that they're trying to conceal it uh the way it's buried in that thicket of of dense topography yeah
0: yeah the the critic anthony west once wrote a whole book about that really (laughs) Uh, fiction fiction isn't really fiction if you dig deep enough you're going to see it all really happened
1: (laughs) yeah i i believe and again that continuity the continuum of of history uh that I, I, one of the reasons that we study his I mean, this is a, a platitude, but one of the reasons to study history and uh, biography, read biographies and read works like those that I am writing is, is uh, not because history does repeat itself, obviously, but not in the same form, to, it seems to me. It, yeah, it, yeah. There's a pattern in the carpet and the carpet is seamless, and it goes from the distant past into the future, and we need to learn to distinguish the pattern, the figure in the carpet, and see it repeating, see the, yeah. see the pattern on the wallpaper repeating, because it's, we're going to be presented with, with situations in, in, his, in history uh, that, are, that are akin to what happened in the past, but it's changed.
0: There's a yeah, there's a quotation. I don't have the direct quotation at hand from Mark Twain about history rhyming. Not repeating ah, itself, but rhyming. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, which I think is pretty pretty astute the way to think about it. Yeah. So um are you done writing novels now that you've done all twelve, or are you going to do something else?
1: No, I'm going to write novels. In fact, I've I'm sketching out uh, another one. Uh but it won't be uh I am finished. I am finished invoking uh, actual historical characters. I see, Uh, but uh, I probably the one that I am uh, sketching out now happens in the 1950s in Atlantic City. So it has that. Oh, good. Yeah. Uh, Our uh, territory. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Our southern New Jersey territory. Exactly, as as you know, I uh, lived twenty. Twenty years worked, uh, lived and worked for uh, about twenty-seven years in Millville, which is uh, Millville, Vineland, not too far from inland from you. That's right. That's right. Uh, I'm I'm in uh, northern uh, central New Jersey now in Matawan, ah. on Raritan Bay. I can look across and see uh, Lower Manhattan and Coney Island, and with a pair of binoculars, I can see the Wonder Wheel, Coney Island. So it's uh, that's pretty good. It's a nice spot. Um, Do we still have more
0: time to talk? Yes, I was going to say, you know, there's something I should have asked you that I've forgotten. Please go ahead or anything you want to say. I'd like
1: to talk about... uh, uh, First of all, let me talk about a little bit more about... I was thinking... I think I mentioned in an email to you but that the the lazy mind, uh, such as I think everyone has, but maybe mine more than most... Uh, half formulates uh certain ideas i'm always thinking about the practice of writing mm-hmm. and narrative what a narrative is what it might be how to construct it uh, but sometimes my formulations are not half-baked but half formulated let's put it that way but i've been thinking a great deal um uh about uh the idea of uh, point of view, I guess, narrative point of view. And I'd like to talk to you about, it. I'd like to hear what you, your opinions as, as I go along trying to tease this out. First of all, it seems to me that uh, the self is a very unstable compound. And we feel obliged uh, as writers uh, and, and as readers uh, we feel obliged to to uh, always to sharpen our characterizations when we're writing about a character. Uh, although the the true shape and condition of the personality is otherwise is amorphous and tentative. it's It's a blur. It's the opposite of anything focused and sharp that the the focused, sharpened characterization that we look to the novelist to provide, is, a, is an artifice, is a convention. Um, now, I'm, I've been aware, aware of that, especially in relationship to the writing of historical fictions when, and the use, uh, utilization of historical personages. Um, so, so, so that's why, and you may have noticed that, well, there's one exception, and that's the novel under discussion, and the novel perhaps the only one you've read so far. But in the other... 11. I use the device of a first person, unreliable narrator who, um, it, it's, it's the device that uh, uh, ga- uh used in Gatsby. Mm. Uh, Nick uh, revolves around Gatsby, Nick, the uh, with the limited point of view, as any of us have when we look at another person. And for me, the the most honest, th- the the most honest point of view is that of the first person unreliable narrator, because it does not pretend to any third person objective omniscience. Right. That would convey uh, uh, pretense. That would pretend to a full knowledge of the character, and that's where I think the danger of of uh, developing a characterization that's overly preci- precise uh, and uh, and pretends to a certain definitiveness, which is impossible. Yeah, I think this is especially important in the kind of fiction that you and I are concerned with. Uh, so I use I, I I use this device consistently of introducing. A fictional character who is in the orbit of the historical character, and I let him bear the responsibility for misinterpretation, yeah, and mistaking aspects of the historical fact. He can get it. He can get it wrong, uh, and he can be forgiven his mistakes. Or, or at least the reader can be made he can acknowledge the fact that he's seeing the character through a bias, and that solved the problem for me—a uh, major problem. Yeah, it's an interesting solution.
0: I think the first-person voice—I uh, know what you're talking about in terms of its authenticity. Yes, I'm thinking of Mailer again. His first novel, *The Naked and Dead*, was third-person, and he concluded after that. You know, he was only 25 when it came out. And he concluded that he, it was too superficial. Mm-hmm. Uh, he never used the third person again until you get into the 60s where he treats himself in the third person where he's studying himself. Uh, it. It's very interesting. Uh, influenced, I think, by Henry Adams, the education of Henry Adams, who does Which, some, some yeah. of the same things to himself. That's an important book for me too. Yeah. The education. Well, right. In biography, we've got a problem here if I invent an unreliable narrator in a biography ex- <laughs> <It> <laughs> undercuts your whole intention yeah the expectations of the genre have just been destroyed but <laughs> I'll tell you what I can do uh-huh. uh, because I'm aware of this issue uh, people read a biography one of the problems with the way biographies are reviewed one of my hobby horses is they're reviewed as content You know, as if I'm just learning about who this person is And they're not thinking about who's narrating this book. On the other hand, if you're the biographer and you start telling the person about yourself, they're going to say, I don't want to hear about Rollison. I came to read about, you know, so-and-so, not him. And yet we don't do that in fiction. We say, oh, yeah, we've got to know about Nick Carraway. We don't want to just know about Gatsby. So how do you deal with that in biography? In my case, occasionally what I've done, I did this fairly early on in my second biography, which was of Lillian Hellman, at certain strategic places, I took the reader into an interview session where I did it like a play where there was my name and the interviewee's name, and the reader got to see how did I get this information, for for example, out of Lillian Hellman's lawyer? What was my approach? Um, So that I could give them some sense of process
1: because, yeah, go ahead. No, that's very effective, uh, uh, very effective. Uh, yeah,
0: so I, I've done that from time to time in books, not consistently, because every book is different, you have different different purposes in books, um, but it's one of the reasons why I've done uh, uh, these day-by-day books. I have a Marilyn Monroe day-by-day book and uh, two on Sylvia Plath that are coming out, in which uh you get excerpts from their diaries, their letters, their journals, things reported about them, and so on. And there is no integrating narrative. In a sense, the reader of such a book becomes his or her own narrator. It's a kind of antidote to the, the kind of traditional biographical narrative. I see.
1: It, it, the, whole, uh, the, the whole issue that we both have solved in our own, you know, reminds me of... uh uh, Breck's, uh, alienation effect. Uh, I never quite understood that until very recently, why he was, why he would destroy deliberately set out to, to destroy the, uh, uh, the reader, the, uh, the audience's, uh, uh, suspension of disbelief, why he would want to, uh, all of a sudden puncture the, the theatrical illusion. And now I understand. And it's what you have just, uh, Commented about your own yeah. practice as well as my own that you need to do that if you're going to uh, uh, initiate a discourse, yeah, the reader, uh, to to, uh, to open up the conversation.
0: Yeah, I. Um, the other thing a biographer can do is experiment with different narrative voices. Uh, I've begun to do this uh, in one of my recent books, The Last Days of Sylvia Plath, I have a section in which essentially I channel her voice, uh, very much like what you're doing in a biographical novel uh, so that there's not Plath said or Plath thought, it's just her and what she's thinking about Ted Hughes and so on. And that's followed by fairly traditional narrative uh, in some points. As well as testimony from his 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 friends, who some of whom didn't like her at all, and it's attempt to to you know to diversify. Oh, I must Uh, read that. I must read that.
1: Are you are you using uh, when you channel? Are you using the first person? You speaking? Essentially, I'm within her consciousness. It's kind of like what Henry James does
0: when he's writing it. You know, from Strether's point of view. Yes. That kind of thing. The other thing I do in that same book, I start off. Uh, and I give my permission to do this. I um, visited England when I was 15 years old in 1963, and Plath had just died. I didn't even know who Plath was then, but I knew what England was like then. And so I start the book by talking about what England was like then and, and my experience—not not at any great length—but just to provide a context for the reader that the person who's telling this story is someone who's been there and done that.
1: I see. I see.
0: So that book more than probably any of my other biographies I'm proud of because I have dealt with some of those issues, those complexities, those problems with with biography that, that, that limit the way the story can be told.
1: Yes. Now, do does that raise the eyebrows of your uh, peers? Uh, I would think you were supposed to refine yourself out of existence. As <laughs> <a> choice. <laughs> Well, you
0: know, you know, there have only been a couple of really serious probing reviews uh, and and uh, both by biographers uh, who understand the form uh, and they don't seem to have a problem with it. Most people, again, who review my books, my biographies, and this includes The Last Days of Sylvia Plath, the book I'm talking about now, simply respond to it as content. And so they're saying things like "He's hostile to Ted Hughes or he's this or he's that," or he's another thing you know they're 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 bringing out uh all kinds of attitudes uh in my yeah. narrative that may or may not be there, but I mean just completely disregarding the form I see and the way the story is told that yeah. by and large, what happens with biography
1: i, I can I can see that that now the uh, yes the, 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 it never occurred to me until talking to you that uh, what what role what functional role the biographer plays in the uh, the rendering of his of his uh, of the of the story that re- actually the biographer i suppose in your case is making another story uh, his or her own yeah um, yeah that's that's yeah. a very difficult. That's that's right on the knife edge, isn't it?
0: Yeah. My greatest satisfaction, actually, is a book I wrote called A Private Life of Michael Foote, about the British politician who I got to know uh, by doing a biography of his wife uh, and recorded over a hundred hours of him speaking. And ultimately I thought, boy, this is a chance to be a Boswell, you know, because it's all about how I got to know him and the kinds of things he was working and that willing to talk about how I got him to about things that people said he wouldn't talk about. and it's, it's sort of that tension between the biographer and the subject, which is you rarely get
1: except in something like Boswell. Yes. T- remind me, I haven't read that in uh, oh in ages. Uh, is, is Boswell a uh, is he a presence or is he just uh, giving voice? Is he just describing Johnson? Does, no, he's uh, definitely a, emerge as a personality? Yeah,
0: he does. He's a character he in the book and quite okay. an amusing character. Yeah, yeah. No, he's, he's very important as, a, as almost a kind of foil to Johnson. Johnson is constantly making fun of him uh, in a number of different ways, even though he confides in Boswell at the same time. In fact, the book reflects perfectly the ambivalence about biography. You know, when it's mining your life, what, what in the hell are they doing?
1: Yes, but with <laughs> with the with the subject's uh, approval.
0: Yeah, with the approval and yet suspicion.
1: <laughs> yeah, approval and suspicion exactly. Which
0: was true with Michael Foot too, although he never expressed his suspicion. It was more by omission. You know, the 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 uh, graphic pauses when I, I asked him about <laughs> some things gets gets to be quite amusing uh, in the book. So uh, yeah, that's. Uh, that's that's part of the issue, you know, Norman. we could go on and on and on about this. We're going to have to do this again.
1: Oh, I'd love to I, 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 there's there's a few things unsaid yet that I want to make mention of about the theme of uh, the book under discussion, but we can do that. oh, we've spoken an hour. We can do that uh, again if you like or continue. yeah,
0: we will yeah i will I will uh, email you and we'll set up another date,
1: so we will just call this one to be continued. All right. All right. we've uh, we been speaking live or is this being recorded or
0: it's being recorded? It's live and recorded, so to speak. As soon as I say "Bye, Norman, then it's going to go into a processing that usually takes a few minutes. And then I will send you a link and I will be posting the link on Facebook and Twitter. And you'll have this link and you can share it with anybody you like.
1: Okay. Well, that's fine. I've, I've uh... I very much a good conversation is is a chance for self-discovery and uh, it's been a rare treat. Yeah. Well, I thank you for the invitation.
0: Oh, you're welcome. More than any other guest, you've you've pulled out things, I think, that are really important.
1: Good. And I look forward to speaking again and I look forward to visiting you.
0: OK. Oh, yes. We're going to do that for sure.
1: All right. See you soon. Thank you. Sure. Bye.
0: Bye bye.